Section 12 of Part 3 of Religious Affections. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matthew James Gray. mjgray.id.au Religious Affections by Jonathan Edwards. Section 12 of Part 3. There are some persons' experiences that naturally work that way, to make them think highly of them, and they do often themselves speak of their experiences as very great and extraordinary. They freely speak of the great things they have met with. This may be spoken and meant in a good sense. In one sense, every degree of saving mercy is a great thing. It is indeed a thing great, yea, infinitely great, for God to bestow the least crumb of children's bread on such dogs as we are in ourselves. And the more humble a person is that hopes that God has bestowed such mercy on him, the more apt will he be to call it a great thing that he has met with in this sense. But if by great things which they have experienced they mean comparatively great spiritual experiences, or great compared with others' experiences, or beyond what is ordinary, which is evidently oftentimes the case, then for a person to say, I have met with great things, is the very same thing as to say, I am an eminent saint, and have more grace than ordinary. For to have great experiences, if the experiences be true and worth the telling of, is the same thing as to have a great grace. There is no true experience but the exercise of grace, and exactly according to the degree of true experience is the degree of grace and holiness. The persons that talk thus about their experiences when they give an account of them expect that others should admire them. Indeed, they do not call it boasting to talk after this manner about their experiences, nor do they look upon it as any sign of pride, because they say, oh, they know that it was not they that did it, it was free grace. They are things that God has done for them. They would acknowledge the great mercy God has shown them, and not make light of it. But so it was with the Pharisee that Christ tells us of, Luke chapter 18. He in words gave God the glory of making him to differ from other men. God, I thank thee, says he, that I am not as other men. They're verbally ascribing it to the grace of God, that they are holier than other saints, does not hinder their forwardness to think so highly of their holiness, being a sure evidence of the pride and vanity of their minds. If they were under the influence of a humble spirit, their attainments in religion would not be so apt to shine in their own eyes, nor would they be so much in admiring their own beauty. The Christians that are really the most eminent saints, and therefore have the most excellent experiences, and are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, humble themselves as a little child, Matthew chapter 8, verse 4, because they look on themselves as but little children in grace, and their attainments to be but the attainments of babes in Christ, and are astonished at and ashamed of the low degrees of their love and their thankfulness, and their little knowledge of God. Moses, when he had been conversing with God in the mount, and his face shone so bright in the eyes of others as to dazzle their eyes, wist not that his face shone. There are some persons that go by the name of high professors, and some will own themselves to be high professors, 
but eminently humble saints, that will shine brightest in heaven, are not at all apt to profess high. I do not believe there is an eminent saint in the world that is a high professor. Such will be much more likely to profess themselves to be least of all saints, and to think that every saint's attainments and experiences are higher than his. Such is the nature of grace, and of true spiritual light, that they naturally dispose the saints in the present state to look upon their grace and goodness little, and their deformity great. And they that have the most grace and spiritual light of any in this world have most of this disposition, as will appear most clear and evident to anyone that soberly and thoroughly weighs the nature and reason of things, and considers the things following. That grace and holiness is worthy to be called little, that is, little in comparison of what it ought to be. And so it seems to one that is truly gracious. For such a one has his eye upon the rule of his duty, a conformity to that is that he aims at. It is what his soul struggles and reaches after, and it is by that that he estimates and judges of what he does and what he has. To a gracious soul, and especially to one eminently gracious, that holiness appears little, which is little of what it should be, little of what he sees infinite reason for, and obligation to. If his holiness appears to him to be at a vast distance from this, it naturally appears despicable in his eyes, and not worthy to be mentioned as any beauty or amiableness in him. For the like reason, as a hungry man naturally accounts that which is set before him but a little food, a small matter, not worth mentioning, that is nothing in comparison of his appetite. Or as the child of a great prince, that is jealous for the honour of his father, and beholds the respect which men show him, naturally looks on that honour and respect very little, and not worthy to be regarded, which is nothing in comparison of that which the dignity of his father requires. But that is the nature of true grace and spiritual light, that it opens to a person's view the infinite reason there is that he should be holy in a high degree. And the more grace he has, the more this is opened to view, the greater sense he has of the infinite excellency and glory of the divine being, and of the infinite dignity of the person of Christ, and the boundless length and breadth and depth and height of the love of Christ to sinners, and as grace increases, the field opens more and more to a distant view, until the soul is swallowed up with the vastness of the object, and the person is astonished to think how much it becomes him to love his God, and this glorious Redeemer, that has so loved man, and how little he does love. And so the more he apprehends, the more the smallness of his grace and love appears strange and wonderful and therefore is more ready to think that others are beyond him. For wondering at the littleness of his own grace, he can scarcely believe that so strange a thing happens to other saints. It is amazing to him that one that is really a child of God, and that has actually received the saving benefits of that unspeakable love of Christ, should love no more, and he is apt to look upon it as a thing peculiar to himself, a strange an exempt instance, for he sees only the outside of other Christians, but he sees his own inside. Here the reader may possibly object that love to God is really increased in proportion as the knowledge of God is increased, and therefore 
How should an increase of knowledge in a saint make his love appear less in comparison of what is known? To which I answer that although grace and the love of God in the saints be answerable to the degree of knowledge or sight of God, yet it is not in proportion to the object seen and known. The soul of a saint, by having something of God opened to sight, is convinced of much more than is seen. There is something that is seen that is wonderful, and that sight brings with it a strong conviction of something vastly beyond that is not immediately seen, so that the soul at the same time is astonished at its ignorance and that it knows so little as well as that it loves so little. And as the soul in a spiritual view is convinced of infinitely more in the object yet beyond sight, so it is convinced of the capacity of the soul of knowing vastly more if the clouds and darkness were but removed, which causes the soul, in the enjoyment of a spiritual view, to complain greatly of spiritual ignorance and want of love, and to long and reach after more knowledge and more love. Grace and the love of God in the most eminent saints in this world is truly very little in comparison of what it ought to be, because the highest love that ever any attain to in this life is poor, cold, exceedingly low, and not worthy to be named in comparison of what other obligations appear to be from the joint consideration of these two things, viz. 1. The reason God has given us to love him in the manifestations he has made of his infinite glory, in his word and in his works, and particularly in the gospel of his Son, and what he has done for sinful man by him. And 2. The capacity there is in the soul of man, by those intellectual faculties which God has given it, of seeing and understanding these reasons, which God has given us, to love him. How small indeed is the love of the most eminent saint on earth, in comparison of what these things jointly considered do require. And this grace tends to convince men of this, and especially eminent grace, for grace is of the nature of light and brings truth to view. And therefore he that has much grace apprehends much more than others that a great height to which his love ought to ascend. And he sees better than others how little a way he has risen towards that height. And therefore estimating his love by the whole height of his duty, hence it appears astonishingly little and low in his eyes. And the eminent saint, having such a conviction of the high degree in which he ought to love God, this shows him not only the littleness of his grace, but the greatness of his remaining corruption, in order to judge how much corruption or sin we have remaining in us, we must take our measure from that height to which the rule of our duty extends, the whole of the distance we are at from that height is sin, for failing of duty is sin, otherwise our duty is not our duty, and by how much the more we fall short of our duty, so much the more sin have we. Sin is no other than disagreeableness in a moral agent to the law or rule of his duty, and therefore the degree of sin is to be judged of by the rule, 
so much disagreeableness to the rule, so much sin, whether it be in defect or excess. Therefore, if men in their love to God do not come up halfway to that height which duty requires, then they have more corruption in their hearts than grace, because there is more goodness wanting than is there, and all that is wanting is sin. It is an abominable defect, and appears so to the saints, especially those that are eminent. It appears exceedingly abominable to them that Christ should be loved so little, and thanked so little for his dying love. It is in their eyes hateful ingratitude. And then the increase of grace has a tendency another way, to cause the saints to think their deformity vastly more than their goodness. It not only tends to convince them that their corruption is much greater than their goodness, which is indeed the case, but it also tends to cause the deformity that there is in the least sin, or the least degree of corruption, to appear so great as vastly to outweigh all the beauty there is in their greatest holiness. For this also is indeed the case. For the least sin against an infinite God has an infinite hatefulness or deformity in it. But the highest degree of holiness in a creature has not an infinite loveliness in it, and therefore the loveliness of it is as nothings in comparison of the deformity of the least sin. That every sin has infinite deformity and hatefulness in it is most demonstrably evident, because what the evil or iniquity or hatefulness of sin consists in is the violating of an obligation, or the being or doing contrary to what we should be, or do, or are obliged to. And therefore, by how much the greater the obligation is that is violated, so much the greater is the iniquity and hatefulness of the violation. But certainly our obligation to love and honour any being is in some proportion to his loveliness and honourableness or to his worthiness to be loved and honoured by us, which is the same thing. We are surely under greater obligation to love a more lovely being than a less lovely, and if a being be infinitely lovely, or worthy to be loved by us, then our obligations to love him are infinitely great, and therefore whatever is contrary to this love has in it infinite iniquity, deformity, and unworthiness. But on the other hand, with respect to our holiness or love to God, there is not an infinite worthiness in that. The sin of the creature against God is in deserving and hateful in proportion to the distance there is between God and the creature. The greatness of the object and the meanness and inferiority of the subject aggravates it. But it is the reverse with regard to the worthiness of the respect of the creature to God. It is worthless and not worthy in proportion to the meanness of the subject. So much the greater the distance between God and the creature, so much the less is the creature's respect worthy of God's notice or regard. The great degree of superiority increases the obligation on the inferior to regard the superior, and so makes the want of regard more hateful. But the great degree of inferiority diminishes the worth of the regard of the inferior, because the more he is inferior, the less he is worthy of notice. The less he is, the less is what he can offer worth, for he can offer no more than himself in offering his best respect, and therefore, as he is little and little worth, so is his respect little worth. And the more a person has of true grace and spiritual light, 
the more will it appear thus to him, the more will he appear to himself infinitely deformed by reason of sin, and the less will the goodness that is in his grace or good experience appear in proportion to it. For indeed, it is nothing to it. It is less than a drop to the ocean. For finite bears no proportion at all to that which is infinite. But the more a person has of spiritual light, the more do things appear to him in this respect, as they are indeed. Hence it most demonstrably appears that true grace is of that nature, that the more a person has of it with remaining corruption, the less does his goodness and holiness appear in proportion to his deformity, and not only to his past deformity, but to his present deformity, in the sin that now appears in his heart, and the abominable defects of his highest and best affections and brightest experiences. The nature of many high and religious affections and great discoveries, as they are called, in many persons that I have been acquainted with, is to hide and cover over the corruption of their hearts, and to make it seem to them as if all their sin was gone, and to leave them without complaints of any hateful evil left in them, though it may be they cry out much of their past unworthiness. A sure and certain evidence that their discoveries, as they call them, are darkness and not light. It is darkness that hides men's pollution and deformity, but light, let into the heart, discovers it, searches it out in its secret corners, and makes it plainly to appear especially that penetrating, all-searching light of God's holiness and glory. It is true that saving discoveries may for the present hide corruption in one sense. They restrain the positive exercises of it, such as malice, envy, covetousness, lasciviousness, murmuring, etc. But they bring corruption to light in that which is privative, vis-a-vis that there is no more love, no more humility, no more thankfulness. Which defects appear most hateful in the eyes of those who have the most eminent exercises of grace, and are very burdensome, and cause the saints to cry out of their leanness and odious pride and ingratitude. And whatever positive exercises of corruption at any time arise, and mingle themselves with eminent actings of grace, grace will exceedingly magnify the view of them, and render their appearance far more heinous and horrible. The more eminent saints are, and the more they have of the light of heaven in their souls, the more do they appear to themselves, as the most eminent saints in this world do to the saints and angels in heaven. How can we rationally suppose the most eminent saints on earth appear to them, if beheld any otherwise than covered over with the righteousness of Christ, and their deformities swallowed up and hid in the coruscation of the beams of his abundant glory and love? How can we suppose our most ardent love and praises appear to them, that do behold the beauty and glory of God without a veil. How does our highest thankfulness for the dying love of Christ appear to them, who see Christ as he is, who know as they are known, and see the glory of the person of him that died, and the wonders of his dying love, without any cloud of darkness? And how do they look on the deepest reverence and humility, with which worms of the dust on earth approach that infinite majesty, which they behold. Do they appear great to them, or so much as worthy of the name of reverence and humility, 
in those that they see to be at such an infinite distance from that great and holy God in whose glorious presence they are. The reason why the highest attainments of the saints on earth appear so mean to them is because they dwell in the light of God's glory and see God as he is. And it is in this respect that the saints on earth, as it is with the saints in heaven, in proportion as they are more eminent in grace. I would not be understood that the saints on earth have in all respects the worst opinion of themselves when they have most of the exercises of grace. In many respects it is otherwise. With respect to the positive exercises of corruption, they may appear to themselves freest and best when grace is most in exercise, and worst when the actings of grace are lowest. And when they compare themselves with themselves at different times, they may know when grace is in lively exercise, that it is better with them than it was before, though before, in the time of it, they did not see so much badness as they see now. And when afterwards they sink again in the frame of their minds, they may know that they sink, and have a new argument of their great remaining corruption, and a rational conviction of a greater vileness than they saw before. And many have more of a sense of guilt, and a kind of legal sense of their sinfulness by far, than when in the lively exercise of grace. But yet it is true, and demonstrable from the aforementioned considerations, that the children of God never have so much of a sensible and spiritual conviction of their deformity, and so great and quick and abasing a sense of their present vileness and odiousness, as when they are highest in the exercise of true and pure grace, and never are they so much disposed to set themselves low among Christians as then. And thus, he that is greatest in the kingdom, or most eminent in the church of Christ, is the same that humbles himself, as the least infant among them, agreeable to that great saying of Christ, Matthew chapter 18, verse 4. A true saint may know that he has some true grace, and the more grace there is, the more easily is it known, as was observed and proved before. But yet it does not follow that an eminent saint is easily sensible that he is an eminent saint when compared with others. I will not deny that it is possible that he that has much grace and is an eminent saint may know it, but he will not be apt to know it. It will not be a thing obvious to him. That he is better than others and has higher experiences and attainments is not a foremost thought, nor is it that which from time to time readily offers itself. It is a thing that is not in his way, but lies far out of sight. He must take pains to convince himself of it. There will be need of a great command of reason and a high degree of strictness and care in arguing to convince himself. And if he be rationally convinced by a very strict consideration of his own experiences, compared with the great appearances of low degrees of grace in some other saints, it will hardly seem real to him that he has more grace than they, and he will be apt to lose the conviction that he has by pains obtained, nor will it seem at all natural to him to act upon that supposition. And this may be laid down as an infallible thing, that the person who is apt to think that he, as compared with others, is a very eminent saint, much distinguished in Christian experience, in whom this is a first thought that rises of itself and naturally offers itself, he is certainly 
mistaken. He is no eminent saint, but under the great prevailings of a proud and self-righteous spirit. And if this be habitual with the man, and is steadily the prevailing temper of his mind, he is no saint at all. He is not the least degree of any true Christian experience, so surely as the word of God is true. And that sort of experiences that appears to be of that tendency, and is found from time to time to have that effect, to elevate the subject of them with a great conceit of those experiences, is certainly vain and delusive. Those supposed discoveries that naturally blow up the person with an admiration of the eminency of his discoveries and fill him with conceit that now he has seen and knows more than most other Christians have nothing of the nature of true spiritual light in them. All true spiritual knowledge is of that nature that the more a person has of it the more is he sensible of his own ignorance as is evident by 1 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 2, He that thinketh he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet, as he ought to know. Agur, when he had a great discovery of God, and sense of the wonderful height of his glory, and of his marvellous works, and cries out of his greatness and incomprehensibleness, at the same time had the deepest sense of his brutish ignorance, and looked upon himself the most ignorant of all the saints. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 2, 3, and 4. Surely I am more brute than any man, and have not the understanding of a man. I neither learned wisdom, nor have the knowledge of the holy. Who hath ascended up into heaven, or descended? Who hath gathered the wind in his fists? Who hath bound the waters in a garment? Who hath established all the ends of the earth? What is his name, and what is his son's name? if thou canst tell. End of section 12 of part 3 Recording by Matthew James Gray mjgray.id.au